Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes under the general rubric, The World is not enough, is never enough. Uh, And under this rubric, uh, we have already looked at three of the book's major themes. This is a weary and worn out world. There's nothing new under the sun. We are captives on the carousel of life and time. There's a time for this, a time for that, a time for everything. And eternity beckons but eludes us. He has put eternity in our hearts, but we cannot discern what God has done from beginning to end. Uh, today, we'll be uh, discussing a topic uh, that we seldom, if ever, talk about in mixed company, polite conversation, or cocktail parties. At least I don't recall any. Not politics and religion, but death. Uh, I guess this is a good day to talk about it. It's bright and sunny, and there's no way to get around that death is a somber and serious subject. So let me, let's see, there we go. I'm going to start by reading Ecclesiastes excerpts from chapter 3, chapter 6, and chapter 9. And again, we're, if you're new um, or you forgot, uh, we're studying thematically. We, we simply don't have the time to go by verse by verse, even paragraph by paragraph. So we're studying the themes that Solomon himself seems to cover. From chapter 3, starting with verse 18. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust. And to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. Who can then bring him to see what will happen after him? And from chapter 6, starting with verse 12 and into chapter 7. For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? A good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. And from chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. So I reflected on this, all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wickedness, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your life, with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your, all your might, for in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So Solomon wants to tell us that death awaits us all. And to heed this wisdom under that theme, death is an undeniable and unavoidable reality. Death ends all our longings, desires, and dreams for this life. Death is a curse and an enemy, not a normal part of life. Life should be taken seriously and death faced honestly. Life can still be lived with joy. Accepting death does not mean embracing it. And we'll look at each one of those in turn. First of all, death is an undeniable and unavoidable reality. So the fact of our mortality is an ever-present reality in all the moments and events of our lives. Uh, Philosophers have a way of making the obvious sound deeply profound. So the German existential Philosopher Martin Heidegger once said that the most important thing about a human being is that he is sein zum Tod. That's my best German accent, which is German for being towards death. Sounds very profound. Only humanity, he wrote, has the distinction of standing and facing death. Now, what he means is that we among the animals are the only ones that know that we are going to die. For Heidegger, he was an existentialist, so he talked a lot about authentic living. And for him, authentic living or being is only possible as one recognizes his own finitude and realizes 
that he is always on a journey towards death. Now, that is somewhat profound. But Solomon made the point and made it better uh, 3,000 years ago. And I, I sort of summarized Solomon's point right here. A <coughs> few episodes ago, um, I think we can see it. Um, whatever you do in your life, uh, and however much you achieve, however much you gain, of course you are never going to gain eternity. You are on a journey towards death, li- literally in that picture. On the other hand, if Heidegger is right, and I think he is on this point, although to be fair, he was wrong about a number of things, uh, then there are very few of us living authentically Uh, Because most human beings, most of the time, live their lives in denial and fear of death. Even even Paul, no, Hebrews, in Hebrews, it says that we have suffered under the fear of death. We live in a youth-worshiping, death-denying culture. I don't even think I need to give examples of that. Uh, Does anybody want to dispute the fact that we live in a youth-worshiping, death-denying culture? I mean, go figure, Botox, which is a deadly poison, a cup of which would kill everybody in the city of Louisville, is not, seriously, it would. Um, Deadly bacterial toxin is used to make people look younger. There you have it, death and youth in the same product. Um, This is so much so that cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker, who's a fascinating character, But anyway, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, he argued that the the whole edifice of human civilization, everything we have done throughout history, all we have achieved, all we have created, all that we do uh, in our culture and society has been made to serve the purpose of protecting us from the knowledge of our own mortality and enabling us to create meaning for ourselves and achieve symbolic immortality. Um, Becker itself, at, at best was an agnostic and he believed in evolution and that somehow or another uh, in our consciousness, uh, evolution has given us a knowledge of our, immorta- of our mortality and we have to deal with that. And so we've dealt with it by creating civilization and trying to find the means of achieve uh, immortality through our works, <coughs> which, as Solomon has pointed out, is already impossible. Now, I'm not sure that the whole purpose of civilization is to deny death, but that's certainly a lot of it. I'm persuaded that much of what we do in love and work and entertainment uh, is either to keep ourselves from thinking about death or to achieve some sort of symbolic immortality. We know deep down, even though we deny it, we can't deny it. I, I know this sounds paradoxical, but, but that's the fact. Like, I can't deny I'm getting old, but I still deny it. So, just so you know. So, death ends all our longings, desires, and dreams for this life. Uh, the plans, projects, and endeavors that we hoped for would create meaning, gain eternity, or leave a legacy are taken from from us. Whatever your hand finds to do, Solomon writes, do it with all your might. Do it now. 
enjoy yourself while you're doing it. Uh, again, I'll say it before, and I'll say it again. Solomon does not counsel either despair or, or uh, inactivity. <coughs> because where you're going in the grave, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Now, Solomon is not denying that there is an afterlife. He is talking, again, from life, from the perspective under the sun. Um, and as far as we know, other than by faith, um, I don't know anybody I know that has come back from the dead of all the funerals I have ever attended. And so, and every, it is the destiny of everyone. Now, this is a general Old Testament teaching. The, 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 the Old Testament teaching does not, Old Testament does not teach general extinction of every human being nor does it teach universalism, but it does teach us that the destiny of every human being in this life is the grave. Uh, we are all going that way. And of course, I do have a Christian, I have to give the uh, final disclaimer, except those of us who are alive when Jesus Christ returns. And we will, caught up, we will be caught up to meet him in the air then. <coughs> So he's not denying an afterlife. His emphasis is on God's judgment in chapter 3 and in chapter 11 and chapter 12. And this implies an afterlife. But he's talking about life here and now under the sun. Uh, he is making us take seriously, though, the fact and meaning of our own death. I used to, again, do another thought experiment with my students. I think it was primarily seniors. Um, don't know if I ever did it with sophomores. Um, to focus on this denial of death. I said, said, you all deny death. How many of you think you're going to die in the next five minutes? I was very careful to make sure that no one with an actual terminal disease in here, and if, it, it, when, I, when I did it in class, and I hope there's no one here, and, and then I would say, well, how about five hours? Anybody five days? How about five months? Five years? And, you know, and, I, and finally for them, I'd get up to maybe 50 years and I'd finally get a hand or so. And then my point was this, is that everybody usually thinks that death has happened, is something that happens to somebody else or some other time. It's not going to happen to me, at least not now, later. So we believe we can make it go away by endlessly deferring it, but of course we can't. Um, we, we have to take seriously the fact that we're going to die and that we take nothing from this life into the next one. Um, and Solomon does make the same point that Paul makes. Uh, we have brought nothing into this life and we can take nothing out. Solomon says of the dead, their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. That's Ecclesiastes 9.6. Yet we often fail to take this lesson to heart. So as Dwayne Garrett, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, <coughs> uh, one of the commentaries I've been using, and he does teach at Southern Seminary, he said this, the astonishing thing is that instead of reckoning with the meaning of death, humans fill their lives with the distractions of a thousand passions and squander what little time they have with immediate but insignificant worries. <clears throat> now, the thing we learned from Ecclesiastes um, 
is that death is a curse and an enemy, not a normal part of life. Now, this is a New Testament teaching also. There is a segment of our culture that wants to normalize death, telling us death is just a part of life. That's the most oxymoronic and kind of stupid thing I've ever heard said about death is part of life. Well, no, it's not. It's like the complete, it's like, it's like dark is part of light. You know, night is part of, you know, daylight. Well, no, it's not. They're the complete opposite. Death is a curse and an enemy, not a normal part of life. Um, Solomon sticks to the point. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny, that is death, overtakes all. There is no difference. There is no discrimination. The good, the bad, the ugly, the evil, the righteous, the saints, the sinners, the accomplished, the rich, the poor, the failures, the successes, the same destiny overtakes all of us. Death is evil. It entered the world through sin as an aspect of the curse for Adam and Eve's disobedience, which God was disappointed in. And I won't take the time to go through all those verses, but, but that is the teaching of both the Old and the New Testament, that death is part of the curse because of sin. Since, uh, since, since Adam, Paul says in Romans, humanity is under the reign of death, uh, and make no mistake about it, uh, this world belongs to sin, death, and the devil. Well, belongs to is not the right word. Uh, the earth and everything in it belongs to God. But he, at this point, exercises uh, some form of dominion. Isaiah uh, calls the shroud in Isaiah 25.7. I don't think that's in the notes, so I added that later. The shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations that the Lord will destroy at the last day. We're all covered in death, and death reigns over us until then. Now, of course, this is all the bad news, just so you know. There is good news. We all know that. But I think we need to dwell for a while with the bad news because it's, again, it's not pessimistic, it's realistic. Is there yeah, a it says Adam needs, the curse of Adam needs disobedience. An aspect and of the curse. Like Genesis and Romans, which is basically the very first book of the Bible, and then Paul. The very was, it, was it accepted in the Old Testament? And that, is, is Paul getting... Death is, is a result of the fall from... Human death is a result of the fall. I mean, Let's not get started about how old the earth the is and animal death, death, but... I'm sorry, what? Was he the first one to introduce that, or was that... No, no, Moses in Genesis okay. was the first one to accept it. No, um, the, the question was not where did death come from. Uh, the, the fall is in the Old Testament, the question was, how are we going to overcome it? And just standard Judaism of Paul's day is that we overcome it because we're God's people and we have the law. And Paul said, well, no, the law just teaches you why you're subject to death, because you are disobedient, and Christ overcomes death. You made me tell the good news. We've got to stick with the bad news for a while. 
But no, it's standard Old Testament teaching. Paul, as a matter of fact, in effect, other than the historical fact of Jesus Christ, uh, said nothing new. Even the testimony about God himself providing a sacrifice is in the Old Testament. Um, anyway, good question. Um, made me lose my space, though, John. Um, the Lord will destroy death at the last day. Uh, all this does not mean a believer, one who trusts in Jesus Christ, should fear death, but death, death does need to be taken seriously and faced honestly. Contemplating our mortality and the brevity of our lives gives us a proper perspective on what is wisdom and what is important in life. The painting on the right is by a 17th century painter, Philippe de Champagne. I'm sure it's pronounced differently in, in, in French, but, but I'm not French, so. It is an example of what was called, this is an example of what was called a memento mori, and that's a Latin phrase which means, remember, you must die. Uh, this is an idea that started in ancient Rome the story I've read is that uh, the slaves uh, who accompanied a victorious general after a triumph on the field of battle were enlisted to walk beside the general and whisper, among other things, memento mori into him to, to in the midst of his achievement and, and hubris to, to mind him, he is immortal like everybody, he is immortal like everybody else. Remember, you must die. Memento Mori artworks were made throughout the Middle Ages and later. This is uh, 1600s um, into the Renaissance era, anyway. I mean, past the Renaissance era, um, into the Reformation era. The point of such works was not to instill fear or be ghoulish. Some of them are quite ghoulish. As a matter of fact, they're the one, let's see, previous, yeah. I'm not sure who did that one. That was probably in a prayer book. That's probably a, a manuscript illustration. Purpose of Memento Mori's was not to instill fear or be ghoulish, but to remind Christians that earthly pleasures and fortune and fame, they'll all be eventually lost. And good looks. There's another common form of Memento Mori. Uh, there are paintings actually named The Death and the Maiden, Death and the Maiden, but it's, it's a theme in a lot of paintings, showing basically the stages of, of youth, old age, and death, and that frequently shows a young maiden staring into a mirror and looking at her good looks with a skeletal figure standing behind her with an hourglass and her old self off to the side. Um, I don't own a painting or a print uh, of, of, of these. Uh, I do have a memento mori. It's a cup. I won't take the time to get it out now, but I have a cup uh, that's from the White Star Cruise Line. Anybody know what's the significance of the White Star Cruise Line? <laughs> it's from the Titanic, and this is a re replica of the coffee and tea service that was found with the wreck of the Titanic and raised, and then they made uh, replicas of it. Um, and so every time I drink coffee out of that, I'm reminded, oh, yeah. It's also like a memento hubris. Remember, you know, you're full of pride, too, because there is truth. Oh, I got to digress. There is some truth 
a little bit to that the scene in the movie, but it was told before where someone said even God himself could not sink the Titanic. Um, and this wasn't said by the character in the movie. I have read uh, in, in the Titanic exhibit that it was said by a construction foreman uh, to a visitor, you know, who was discussing the, the, the watertight bulkheads and compartments on the Titanic. God himself couldn't sink this, couldn't sink this ship. And uh, if I was a Southerner, I would be saying, and God said, here, hold my beer. Um, anyway, uh, a little uh, uh, comic relief in the midst of a heavy topic. So that all, all, all that Solomon wants to tell us about death points us to the idea that dying well is important as living well. Another philosopher, Socrates, well, at least according to Plato, all we know about Socrates is what Plato said he said. The aim of those who practice philosophy, which is the love of wisdom, and for Socrates it was more about the love of wisdom than, than analytical and abstract points. Those who practice philosophy, the aim is, in the proper manner, is to practice for dying and death. Dying well is not emphasized in our culture. I've seen an occasional movie about it. I don't, don't know if I've ever heard a popular song about it. Um, and it's a, a bit of an, a, a lost art. And I'm no expert on the matter of dying well. I, I do know, I, I'm persuaded that getting our affairs in order before we shuffle off this mortal coil should be as much or more about sinking God as arranging our finances. Not to say you shouldn't arrange your finances, but you should do one without neglecting the other. So as I have pointed out before, so much so that you're probably getting tired of me saying it, Solomon is not a killjoy or a pessimist. He is a realist who believed life is serious business. But he also believed that life can still be lived with joy, and he clearly does not argue that accepting death means embracing it. Uh, either in the sense of being constantly morose or fearful, or in the sense of, I don't know, I can't think of anybody other than Marilyn Manson at the time. Does everybody know who Marilyn Manson is? Can't remember his actual name. But you know, this, this affected <coughs> obsession with embracing death, and it is an affectation. I don't think they truly understand what they're doing. Then he became a Christian. <laughs> yeah. um, if we do not ask or expect of life in this world what it cannot give, we can enjoy the good things of this life in gratitude to God. We have to keep, and it can't give eternity. And what that means is you have to recognize that everything is fleeting. Um, I had a nice day Friday. Um, I was with my, my daughter and son-in-law and, oh no, it was Saturday. I had a nice day Friday too, but this was Saturday. And we went to Portland Christian School has a fall festival and, you know, it's, it's kind of a fundraiser, but they had a really good bluegrass band. I mean, it was just like, wow, we're, you know, somebody did something right. I mean, very professional. And it was a lot of fun, and, uh, and it's over. It's just a memory now. 
Everything is fleeting. And if you recall, I, I mentioned a while ago that the word hebel that is usually translated the same way, whatever version you use, whatever they pick out, in the King James Version, it's vanity. In the NIV and most other modern versions, it's meaningless. And I think rightly, they translate it the same way every time, but it has nuances of meaning. Meaningless does, always, does not always mean absurd. It can mean fleeting. It can mean frustrating. It can be futile. Um, so so it, it was fleeting. It's gone. It's a memory. It's a pleasant memory. Um, and we have to keep that in mind, that life can give us moments like that, but it never gives final and full meaning. That only comes as a gift from outside, from, from beyond under the sun, from God itself. Meaning is not something we can manufacture is something like salvation we receive as a gift. But keeping that in mind, if we don't ask or expect of life what it cannot give, we can enjoy the good things of this life in gratitude to God. So taking into account the reality of death should not lead to morbid fascination or grim celebration. I'm not a fan of death. I'm just, I don't, I'm not, I don't like horror movies much. Uh, I hate slasher movies, you know, even the old ones that are not quite slashing enough um, for, for modern taste. I'm, uh, I don't even like the more ghoulish and ghostly aspects of All Hallows' Eve and decorations. Uh, pumpkins, hayrides, night's dragons, superhero costumes, they're fine, but I'm not into vampires, werewolves, Frankenstein. None of that was around, you know, when they turned All Hallows' Eve into, you know, what we know as Halloween anyway. Um, so we need to not embrace death, to, to celebrate it. I'm, I'm not crazy about the Mexican uh, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead, either, uh, when, and the sugar skulls and the, the dancing skeletons, and I don't know. That just seems a little creepy to me. Um, uh, I mean, it's no creepier than uh, what we do. It does seem to be more festive and, uh, I don't know what the word is, but I still don't like it. Uh, I don't like any celebration of death as though it were a reality that will go away if we're just happy about it. Well, okay, we'll give uh, Moses the last words in our meditation on death here. This is from Psalm 90, which is said to be a psalm of Moses. And it, even though it's his words or words meant to reflect him, it is certainly consonant with what Solomon has told us. And so Moses wrote this. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Amen. Uh, next week, we'll uh, finish our journey on Ecclesiastes by arriving at Solomon's destination, which is remember your creator and fear God. So, in our reflection on uh, death, what kinds of questions do you have this morning? I think we have time. Do we have time? Yeah, we have at least 10 minutes or so.
or less if you prefer. Anybody have any questions? Yes, John. Uh, I was just going to make the comment. It came to me as you were as you were uh, going through some of your examples that you know you come come into life with nothing and you leave with nothing. And you know, as much as we hate these video games today, it, it brings to mind this one video game that my son was obsessed with for a long time. With the son right next to you? No, or no, 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 no. Okay. Sixteen-year-old. <laughs> It's called Fortnite. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar. Uh, I know 40-year-old, 50-year-old guys that yeah, are obsessed was, with Fortnite. It was, yeah. a, it was a hot thing for a while, but when you get killed in that game, you, you drop all your stuff that you had, and somebody can come and collect it. So it's a great metaphor for, for that. <laughs> so if you want to teach the gospel to your kids while they're playing video games, that's okay. Well, maybe that one, but most video games, like, you get, like, three lives or something like that. And you can always put another oh, yeah, quarter, quarter in and start over. And it's like, no, oh, that doesn't work out. So you need to, if they get blown up in Fortnite, you have to take it from them and never let them play it again. <laughs> okay. You can build up all this stuff and then boom. It's just, it is gone. It's left behind. And uh, again, I don't want to be morbid, but no one really knows. I mean, I honestly don't think I'm going to die today or next week or next year or five years from now or ten years from now. I really don't. But, but you know, you, you could know. You, no one knows. Uh, and so we have to reflect on it. And again, it doesn't mean to be morbid. I mean, I'm, I'm a happy-go-lucky guy, aren't I? <laughs> My wife chuckles over there. <laughs> sure. But, you know, I reflect on mortality, but I don't think about death all day long. And, and like I said, I do not like... I don't even like the ghoulish aspects of Halloween. Oh, and I'm not one of those uh, Christians who completely eschew Halloween. I, I think, yeah, it's okay. It's basically a fall festival. I, I just... I think, I think properly it's a kind of memento mori. I mean, in the... So you would argue that, that Halloween and yeah. including all the vampires, werewolves, ghouls, and a, ghosties are, a deep, are a memento mori. all the time that we can never, we can never truly ignore those things. So. Well, that's, that's originally how it kind of started. All yeah. Hallows' Eve is the day before All Saints' Day exactly. when you remember saints who have passed on, saints meaning all Christians uh, who are in the Lord. Um, we do give out candy to trick-or-treaters, just so you know. I'm not, I'm not a get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. Tracks. Yeah. No, no. No, I don't. <laughs> Maybe I should. Um, any other questions or comments? Anybody? Uh, Tony. a number of conversations with friends about um, the timeliness of our death. Like recently, we had a friend die and he had like a major event and actually didn't have medical care available to him at that time. And my friend was, uh, she was kind of making it sound like that was his fault. (laughs) And I said, well, you know, I think it was just his time. And she said, well, I, you know, if something happened to me, I'm going to fight it. <laughs> and I guess 
you know, I mean, I guess I think that our days are numbered by God. That As Moses just said that I read, teach us to number our days aright. Exactly. I mean, doesn't it, it actually says our days were, or he numbered our days when we were in our mother's womb. Like, we have a born-on date and an expiration date. But um, I just think it's... There's also a best-by date. I mean, we, we might last a while longer, but we've lost our flavor, so to speak. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, that, that's true, and and I, I'm 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 grateful for medical advances. I literally would not be standing here if uh, if it weren't for them. Uh, but there is a point where you do have to realize that you know the the phrase heroic life support is there for a reason, and. Uh, there are things, uh, you know, I would say, well, you know, I mean, if I were 90 years old, seriously, and had terminal cancer, I, I don't know that I would actually bother with treatment other, other than palliative. But that's just me. I mean, people do live to be 120, so it's possible to live longer. Um, but, uh, well... In general, death would be a useful thing to be talking about, not just for, for those of us who are middle-aged, but, um, but everybody, um, to have a conversation about that. But again, now this is one theme in Ecclesiastes, and the theme is, you know, as you're living your life, keep in mind that you're always headed towards your death, always. Now, we do know, now Solomon was writing before Christ, and but... The, how does Ecclesiastes preach Christ? Well, I'll, I will get to, I backed up one slide. I'll, I'll get to some of that next week and talk about how wisdom in general preaches Christ at the, at the very end of, I think just about as we're getting to Advent at the very end. But Solomon is writing before Christ and his understanding of death is going to be different, but but even the New Testament calls death an enemy. It's it's not it's not your friend. It's it's not it's it's not natural in the sense that it's part of nature that God created. It's what happens, but it happens because we live in a fallen world. Any other? It had to be conquered. Right. It does have to be conquered, and I, I, I almost wanted, I'm glad I didn't get into a discussion of transhumanism because a cutting edge, it's not really fringe, but kind of the fringe of even transhumanism. There are people who actually believe, uh, has a technical term, but it's it, believe you can download your mind into a computer, uh, and that, of course, by that time, we'll have advanced uh, robotics, so you'd be able to live forever in a robotic body, which sounds like hell to me, not eternal life. Um, this is delusional because it's based on a materialistic view of life and that the mind is nothing more than, than, than electrical activity in the brain caused by chemicals. But there are serious people about this. One guy is Ray Kurzweil, who's, uh, among other things, uh, no, he didn't invent the internet. Al Gore did that. 
uh, optical character recognition, uh, the flatbed scanner. Uh, the first flatbed scanner was the size of a table. Uh, this is back in the 70s. And so he's a smart guy, and uh, he, I say he works for Google. He's now with Google as a, you know, as a, hey, we got Ray Kurzweil, we're cool. Uh, but there are Google executives who are really into this stuff. Um, and this, it's another form of hubris, the belief that we can conquer death on our own. We can. Only Christ can. Um, it's probably time to go, if particularly have kids. Um, uh, does anybody have any last-minute questions or comments for the good of the cause? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not actually sure when I first thought about it myself. But it can be very young, but I don't think you fully comprehend it until you hit, until you're past puberty. Uh, well, some never really come to grips with it. They offer you life insurance when you join the military. Tell yeah. me, as a 18-year-old, it's one of those fleeting comments. And oh, all adolescents think they're immortal. Concept changes all of a sudden. Right. Um, well, thank you very much. Uh, and next week we'll finish up with Ecclesiastes and then start with a happier book, The Song of Solomon. <laughs>